What's going on, guys? Welcome back to Middle Class Rockstar. I am not Andy Sitto. I am Patrick Arnold. I am a former guest on this show, but I am also better known as the front for the band's American Field Day and Halloway. But today we are uh, we're going to be doing something pretty special, and that is flipping the script on Andy and having him be the guest, and uh, I'm going to be the host, which is a lot of pressure, but we're just going to go with it. Um, about a month back, Andy was playing at the Gothic Theater with Brett Denon in Denver, and um, and I bounced an idea off of him, which was, why don't we interview you? Because I think Andy has such a special story and uh, something that really should be uh, listened to, and I think a lot of people can learn from him. Um, and if you haven't already, you know, or if you have already, then you uh, you know what I'm talking about. And um, he's a great dude. I want to give a shout out to my buddy Joe Pug and uh, Tim from Strand of Oaks because they did something similar to this on Joe's podcast, The Working Songwriter. Um, I think it was a great idea because anyone who hosts a podcast should have their own episode to talk about themselves because uh, it is their podcast. So I'm going to be giving you guys a little bit of an insight to who Andy is on the surface, and then we'll dive into the interview. So Andy Sidito is the Denver-based singer-songwriter that continues to stun people with his prolific songwriting and instrumental capabilities. He's been awarded by Colorado Blues Society and has appeared on some of the biggest stages in Colorado, including slots at the Bluebird and Ogden Theater, as well as an appearance at the Jazz Snowmass Music Festival. He's jumped on support slots, placing himself on bills with Brett Denon, Tab Benoit, Chuck Prophet, and Anders Osborne. Like I said, Andy is a great songwriter, but he's an all-around great dude and one of my favorite people to talk to and uh, enjoy myself around, so I really hope you guys enjoy this as well. Um, I'm sure Andy has said this a million times, but please give this podcast a rate uh, to keep it going for him because he really is doing something special here. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is Andy Sitto. Enjoy. Well, I want to start out with uh, kind of where your introduction to music came in. Where was the starting point? Well, um, it was. There's always a lot of music in my house as a kid. Uh, my mom played piano. My dad played guitar. Okay. Um, I mean, a- am- amateurs. I mean, <laughs> good amateurs, sure. but not not professionally is what I'm saying. Right. Um, and my both both my parents loved music, and my dad would come down to swallow hill and take guitar classes and stuff when i was a kid and there was this uh, radio show called e-town yes which one of my biggest goals is to get invited to do an e-town taping yes if you don't Um, know what e-town is uh up in boulder they have this thing called e-town where a lot of artists will stop in and uh i don't know it's tape a session uh it's kind of like an austin city limits type of vibe i think in a way yeah uh maybe a little bit uh, dumbed down because Austin City Limits is Austin City Limits. Huge. But yeah, yeah. But E Town is also a big feather in the cap for sure for a lot of people. It is, and I think they're up to like seven million monthly listeners or something crazy like yeah. that. Yeah, um, it's strong. But they have two artists and uh, an achievement award for someone doing something in the community, and it's about two hours live, and they cut it down to an hour on the radio show. Yeah. But my dad. Uh, used to buy tickets. I think they even had season passes back then or okay. something. But he used to go on Sunday nights 
um, with my mom a lot and started taking me to some of them. And I, you know, I went and saw Keb Moe when I was eight years old was the first one. Yeah. And there was just, I was constantly around good music and even artists that my dad didn't know or my mom didn't know. It was still, you know, he, he trusted Nick to bring in, Nick Forster to bring in a great act. So we'd go. Right. And just discovered, you know, for me growing up watching Ben Harper and Buddy Guy and North Mississippi All-Stars, Jackie Green. Yeah. So now, these are some of the uh, musical influences that are kind of the gateway drug for you off the bat. To name a few, yeah. Yeah, go for it. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, Natalie Merchant, it goes, it goes on forever. Right, but right. One, one really cool show was when I was 10, uh, I saw Buddy Guy at E-Town. Yeah. And he had came out with this polka-dotted Strat. <laughs> and he came up, he saw me in the front row, a kid, and he gave me his pick. And I got to keep it. I still have it. Gave me his pick and let me play his guitar. Yeah. During a song. Holy shit. And it was mesmerizing. <laughs> He's such, he seems like the nicest guy because, so I was at Austin City Limits last March and, uh, and, uh, the guy who books it, Jack, uh, and my manager, Don, and a buddy of mine, uh, were walking around in the venue because they were going to miss a tour. And Buddy was playing there that night. Um, so his roadies are setting up, and then they take us back to the green rooms just to show us, you know, like not expecting he would be there. And he's just, uh, he's sitting in one of the common areas. I don't think it was the green room. There's like a bunch of common areas in that building. It's amazing. Um, and he's just sitting looking out the window, turn around, went somewhere down the hall, came back, and uh, he's just standing there, and he's like, oh, hey, guys. <laughs> like just walks away. You're like... He was just nice. Jeez, yeah. That's good. Yeah. But, <laughs> uh, so a lot of blues, rock kind of influences, Americana, yeah. folk rock, which would be S- lining up with what you're doing now. Yeah. Um, so then when, from from that point where you're being inspired, when was the move to start playing actually for you? Well, I'd actually already been playing. My parents put me in piano lessons when I was a little kid and doing classical piano. Okay. Um, I didn't connect the two right away. Sure. I mean, piano lessons and going to see rock artists were two completely different worlds sure. to me at the it time. It was hard to find the way to uh, to see that one can be cool and another. Yeah, you know. yeah. And now I'm very glad I did piano lessons for all those years. But Yeah, and it's paid off. Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, I'm uh, fortunate that I that I did that, and, but I I guess if you know I was really triggered at ten years old watching you know Buddy Guy and watching all these artists, but I didn't actually start writing uh, and playing guitar till high school, you know, a year or sure. two into high school. And where was so? You're going to high school in Denver. Where at? Went to Holy Family in Broomfield. Okay, right Catholic on. school. Catholic school. Yep. Um, Uniforms and all. Oh yeah, I've been there, done that. Third through eighth grade, baby. Um, where? I mean, did you have any music teachers where you were feeling like you were gaining any more inspiration from, or was it you were just kind of self-teaching yourself to write songs? And I mean, where was? Was there instruction or was it just kind of like going for it? Um, not in, 
not in the way that I believe I give students instruction who are interested in songwriting now. Sure. But um, I was very inspired by my, my childhood piano teacher and my uh, Gail Clark and uh, Mr. Suazo, my band teacher in middle school. Sure. So, no, they were great inspiration for me musically, but a lot of um, a lot of the songwriter stuff came from listening to it and going to those shows, and I just sort of yeah. found idols and tried to sound just like them. Yeah, I think for... I, I know where you're coming from on that, obviously, because uh, it's the same way I learned, where it's like... I think if you're listening to the right music and it's uh and it's the direction that you think is probably where you're headed, um, the structure seems to come pretty easy in a way where it's like you might not know the technical names for it off the bat when you're first starting to do it, but then you realize like, okay, there's big moments in the song, there's you know, there's a way it starts out and you just kind of map your way through it, I feel like when you're listening to guys like Jackie Green and yes, um, who are you know people who are great songwriters and have um, have deepened their craft over the years, and I feel like it totally rubs off if you're if you're listening to it the right way. Absolutely, and and Jackie Green, I should mention too, my parents also were big influence musically because it was around the house all the time, and, right? And they both. I have musical sensibility, so it's it's not like I didn't know a a C chord or where a bridge was in a song. Right, um, I, that was just kind of came with the territory. Sure, but Jackie Green was my first artist obsession. Yeah, in high school, where I was, I wanted to be Jackie Green. He played harmonica. I bought a harmonica. Yep. He used this kind of capo. I bought that kind of capo. He wore a hat. I I wore a hat. Right. Kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and it, I, I think you were talking about Brett Denon being one of those figures at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Brett Denon uh, was, came to me on a a burnt CD. Yes, um, that's, illegal. That's what we did. Yeah, that's what we did. We did a... I say that as if it was a long time ago. Is it, the death of CDs sure. is very recent, but that's what we did. We all made mixtapes for each other right? Um, and put them into our huge computers. This is the hip thing to that do. That there was only, yeah... Um, but yeah, I got Brett Denon on a mixtape and just loved it. Got the whole, uh, so much more album. Sure. I, I mean, I mean those, those first few albums that really hit Homer. So, so special. So then from there, um, you're learning your way around crafting songs and, you know, you listen to the right people. Uh, when, when does it come along that you start playing in bands or was that, already happening was it you know school of rock type of thing where you're like running yeah. in circles with a bunch <laughs> of random motherfuckers or is yeah it, you know is it something where you're you're looking around your school and you're like what the hell am i gonna do here like i who can i pick well i never played i don't know that i've ever played in a long-standing dedicated band that wasn't mine um i played sure. in a group my freshman year of high school called on fake I don't even know what Rad. that means, but there's this three of us. One of us had gotten a drum set f- for their birthday. I'd gotten a, a red, a sparkly red Stratocaster for mine nice. for my 14th birthday, and this other kid got a, a bass. And so the three of us would go into the back room during orchestra. Mm-hmm. We did not participate in orchestra. 
this was Catholic school. There was eight kids in the band, three kids in the pep band. There sure. wasn't a lot of uh, emphasis on music at the school. But our band director saw that we loved music, and he allowed us to skip orchestra class and uh, have a rock band in the back closet during cool orchestra dude. instead. I can... he, he was a cool dude, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that I kind of have that same influence now where it's like, you know, talking to my teacher, it's like, uh, you know, like I've got something, like I know I've got, you know, this uh, this pre-course is right there and it's leading into something. I know it. Can I go right? And those people who allow you to be creative are sometimes the most inspiring people that you can be around in a Absolutely. way. Absolutely. And this guy unfortunately ended up um, getting fired for having uh, sexual relations with one of the seniors, but until that Ouch. point, but <laughs> until but that, that was point. neither that was neither here nor there. I mean, he it was, he was cool to let us go in the back room and play rock and roll. <laughs> the back room was a sacred area for a lot of reasons, probably. Though, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, shit. So then it's. So then high school, you're out, and you're going to CU Denver, and that is where, what are you studying there? Great music program at CU Denver. Yeah, they really do, Um, and God, I've just watched it thrive since I've left, too, which is cool, but there's a songwriter major now, Um, but I, I went, I initially got in as classical piano, but I wanted to do jazz, you, you know, you I think in college, you, if you want to play classical, you study classical, and if you want to play anything else, you study jazz. Yeah. Um, I wanted to do the jazz route, so they allowed me to do it for a semester as a trial, and it worked out. So I stayed in that vein, but I started taking jazz piano was my focus. Um, but I mean, it, just the networking there was great. There's pop ensembles, there's singer songwriter ensembles, so. I was getting my feet Dixieland jazz. Yeah, I was playing um, like ragtime and boogie woogie and New Orleans style jazz. I loved sure. that. So I, was, I got to do a lot of different things there. Right. I think those ensemble programs are really taking charge at a lot of places. I was just talking to someone the other day about Berkeley um, has a ton of ensembles, and she was telling me about a. They just do a ton of them. Like I've heard they do like Bruno Mars one. She was telling me she was in a Joni Mitchell one. And it's it's probably really formative in a way because probably Berkeley students are getting close to it. But um, I, I've heard a lot of people say that just by covering songs and playing other people's tunes are really formative in a way where structure is identified even more and more. Because that can be... There is a time where I think that needs to go be taken to the next level. It's like, okay, well, the structure is correct, but I feel like I've written the same 10 songs, and how do I go to a place where um, where it's the next level, where it is yeah. that Joni Mitchell level, which not many people have gotten to, but um, if you could head in that direction a little bit further past where you are, um, that's... I think those ensembles are exactly what contribute to that. I mean, by saying that you're in all these jazz ensembles and groups, does that maybe become pretty formative for you in that sense of the word? Yeah. And and I mean, I mean, just seeing what a form looked like and 
differentiating between a jazz form and a pop form and then also seeing what the similarities are sure. and seeing why this is this and that is that and how they mix together mm-hmm. um, was all big. And I, I think I didn't appreciate till recently the idea of, you know, when our, our pop rock ensemble professor made us play everything note for note just like the recording. Yeah. Oh, there's a bugle horn over there. Someone better figure out how to emulate that. Yeah. Um, and I hated it at the time, but I've recently developed an appreciation for the production side of things. Sure. And uh, I could have taken more advantage then, but the the art of trying to replicate a sound exactly like it is on the recording. Yeah. There's a lot to be. Uh, there's a lot to be learned from that. I think it's. I mean, it's not easy. It I mean, it can come down to a pedal board. Uh, the slightest settings on something is what seems minuscule in that purpose is really not. Um, yeah, I think that's very interesting because when a lot of bands, when they start out, like if with uh, when I was doing the Halloween stuff, like it, it becomes like a jam band kind of thing almost where you're like, you're playing the chords in a structure, but not everybody's playing the exact same thing every time. Whereas to then you look at like professionals and people who are doing it like on a pretty higher level. And it's like, we're going to do, we're going to play with a click in our ears, uh, you know, four songs of the set. And then, you know, the other 10 were literally looking at each other for one like huge hit. It's just like, I think a lot of people now in music, uh, professionally are not as, you know, jam band oriented or, uh, that improv side, at least in rock and roll and, you know, folk rock is, uh, is pretty rare because so much of it is based in the studio at this point. Yeah, I I've always been more on the other side of that where um we start things at a different tempo every night, we do different things every night and I like the improvisational freedom a lot, but more recently in the last couple of years I've been trying to through compose things even if we change them up live, I want it to be with a purpose. Sure. Um and I'm trying to add more produced ideas to the live show because I the art of that to me is is really cool and I like the fact that my band can go out and start a song 20 clicks higher than we normally do because the audience is rowdy and drunk right and uh, that's the only way that song's going to work tonight sure um and we can do a 10 minute solo or no solo but I also really like having some songs now more recently where um it's four minutes and 30 seconds long and we start it about here yeah. and that's how it is. And I, I like that a lot. It's, it's definitely good to like have that ability to kind of change it up. And then at that point, then having the band that can understand that very easily. And that's when it, I think that's when it leads into like how leadership wears off on your bandmates in a sense. Absolutely, and it's it's been interesting for me watching different artists that I love and adore that take the two different approaches. Um, Anders Osborne might play a different set every night, mm-hmm. and he might not play anything off his new record, and that's just how he is. Or right. he might play him solo acoustic, and that's kind of magical. He kind of has the, I guess you'd say the dead approach. Yeah. Um, and then somebody like Jason Isbell, who hits every note just like the album outside of a couple big guitar solos that he takes right he hits everything note for note like the album and the approach is 
I know it's interesting. Yeah. The difference. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody, everybody does it different, but tends to, tends to find a similar line. Like I, the Avett brothers are such a perfect example of that. If anyone uh, has seen them live, then they know what I'm talking about. Where Eddie they, town <laughs> yeah. before they were big <laughs> when the, uh, back in the trio days. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the Avits I think are a perfect example of, I mean, Scott changes the way that he sings notes all the time. And, um, they're just, they're not the same as the record, but in a beautiful way. And I think that's the next step after that is finding that connection where it works. Yeah. Cause it's like, I don't know. And then writing like things like transitions and it, it, like you said, like the live performance is a production on its own, obviously. And, um, I think with that, it's, it becomes not a competition, but this race to see like where, how far you can get and how good you can get. Yeah. Because it can drive you crazy, but it can also be the most satisfying thing walking off the stage and knowing that you gained a lot of people in that room to, you know, go check your music out or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty, it's a pretty solid feeling, but it, it takes so long to get there. Right. right. As a band leader, um, you've, you've done so many different ways of, uh, of composing your band. Uh, there's, there's horns, there's guitars, uh, you know, everything known. And I think it's a very unique thing about what you do is you kind of involve everything and, uh, and make it your own thing, which is very unique. And I think that's what it calls for when finding success in music for sure. Um, how do you go about when composing songs with band members, whether that's in the studio or getting ready for a live, uh, a live show, where does it, how do you get the points across where you're not, um, as a band leader demanding towards those, um, band members, but you're very like, you're able to massage elements of the show in with, um, the way that they're thinking at the same way. So, I mean, I don't know if that necessarily makes sense, but like, how do you, how does that work for you when you're running a band? Because you do a really great job of it. Um, your band looks like they're having a fucking blast every time that you're on stage. Um, you know, and anyone out there who's seen Andy play, they know what I'm talking about. So where does that start for you? Well, I mean, the very root of it is I love music. It keeps me up at night and it gets me out of bed in the morning. Right. And so if I'm playing in front of an audience and playing my songs, it can be a solo, it can be a duo, you can hand me a string section, you can hand me three female backing vocalists. Sure. Um, we're going to have a good time. Yeah. I mean that's that's where it starts and I I try to um I try I I want the the band to fe- I want everybody to feel that vibe who's playing with me. Right. Um that's I think 100% that's the first step. Yeah. Yeah, I mean if if you're not having fun up there and and you can ask anybody who's been in my band I have moments where I get very stressed yeah. and can be irritable to be around if you know some, there's a million things to do and there's a million things to go wrong yeah but f- but I try to stay chill and just and have fun with it especially once we get on stage I'm just having a good time and as far as getting parts and rehearsals and stuff um, there are some things that I do want a certain way um, 
and I will explain what that is or show a chart or send a recording and we'll work on it. Um, but there's other things, um, you know, we're taking a different drummer up to Canada than our normal drummer next month because, um, our normal, uh, our regular drummer has a, has a DUI. He can't go to Canada. Right. Um, they won't let him in. So we have a different drummer and I don't expect him to sound just like Calvin. Right. Because he's not Calvin and that's magical. And I want, and I want him to know that too. I want this drummer to know. You're uh, not going to be this guy. Yeah, and I don't want you to. You're not here to be Calvin. You're right. here to be Azad. You're here to do your thing, um, and and so some of the show we do want some of the same hits in the same places. Sure. And he'll figure out where those are because the other three of us have done them a hundred times. Um, but there are other things that'll evolve, and we'll look back four shows in and be like, "Wow, I like how he directs traffic on this song. It's cool." Right. And um, I you know I want order on some things, but I I want everybody. Um, I want everybody to have fun and, and that's something I think I've gotten better at in the last uh, couple years you know I, I, I think I used to be very anal on stage and mm-hmm. when I was stressed out even you know yell at people on stage yeah um, because if if I was expecting something to happen here and it didn't happen there I would turn around and let them know yeah and I found out um, they get all puckered up, they get pissed off, they stop playing well, or they get nervous. Really quickly. Really quickly. Things and, go to shit very quickly after that. Yeah, and, and so as long as and everybody knows their stuff and you rehearse a couple times, and then after that it's a whatever happens is sort of a gift, and it varies from night to night, and if a hit gets missed or an extra hit gets created, that's okay. So maybe the yeah. long-winded answer is just have fun. <laughs> I and I think that's the root of it and I think it's what has driven so many bands to uh to success in that way. It's like why would you tell somebody if they deep down know that they missed something? It's like they know. They don't need somebody else to When the whole tell band them. stops on beat 4 and one guy doesn't. That's embarrassing enough as it is. Sure. <laughs> sure. And everybody realizes that without you know, thinking twice, it's, there's no rocket science to that. I mean, it's, that's life in general, I guess, is, you know, why kick someone down when they already know that, you know, there's been something messed up and it's just time to move on. Like, cause a hundred percent of the time coming out of shows, you're not really thinking about that when you're done, when you sit in the green room, uh, after coming off stage, the last thing you're thinking about is the hit that you missed on the third song in the set. If it's a great show and everybody has fun, then the audience will have fun. It and rubs then, off. And you don't even remember you don't even remember what happened in the on the third hit. And I, I think what I'm trying to get better at as a band leader now, and I and I have improved at a lot, is understand that everybody is their own musician and everybody came up listening with a different background than you did. Yeah. Um and so what's the way that I can direct traffic enough to what to where it sounds like what I think Andy Sido should sound like. Sure. But also let them sound like what they want to sound like mm-hmm. musically, right? What does Andrew what does Andrew want to sound like musically? How can we put our two worlds together? And yeah. that's a great show. Exactly. And like and once it's found, you're totally right. I think uh yeah, 100%. And, like, again, you know, the audience doesn't 
the audience notices when something works more than when they notice a mistake, which I think a lot of musicians don't take into account is like when you make a mistake, you're probably the only one that knows that other than the other guys that are on stage with you. The audience probably has zero fucking idea because especially if you're the opening act, they have zero idea what to expect because they're probably not a fan. Um, but what does get noticed is when it's working and when there is that, you know, there's the joke. It's like the eye contact, uh, between guitar solos, between the lead singer and the lead guitarist. It's a, it, it's something special and that's noticed and it's made a cliche because it's noticeable. Yeah. And it's solid. Um, and it's what drives people there. If you're having a good time on stage, it's probably because the audience is having a good time. And I mean, even if they're not, you know, like nobody goes into an empty room and is like, you know, excited to be doing it. No, no, no. And, and inevitably, and I, I hate this flaw, but inevitably I, I think I do play better when it's a full room. And I think right. most people do, but um, I've played a whole lot more empty rooms than full rooms and, there's a weird balancing act too between you are there to entertain the artist. I mean, excuse me, to entertain the audience. That is, that is why you're there. Um, if you're just up there for yourself, it's, it's selfish. Music's meant to be shared and that's what you're doing at the same time. You have to be up there for yourself because, uh, there are going to be empty nights and you got to go out and have fun anyway. You got to find a way to easily, uh, not be careless. Yeah. Yep. And it, it's super easy to do. And, I mean, you and I have probably both been in that situation. And anyone who's a musician out there who's uh, done anything like this to the extent that Andy and I uh, have, then they, you know, would understand that as well. Um, it's if the excitement and the adrenaline isn't running, you make mistakes a lot easier. Or you just stop caring. And that's probably even worse in a way. But to four track composing those songs with the band where does the song what does the songwriting process look like for you because uh you're multi-instrumentalist um you know your way around pro tools and logic and midi and things along that line so where does the songwriting process begin for you where um where does it start and does it change or is it the same thing every time it's not the same thing every time except for it's usually a melody and a and a riff um and and then words come later uh, unless it's a single line i think of sometimes i'll think of a single line i'll never write like two stanzas with no music or riff it's sure. it's uh that doesn't happen to me but i typically write on guitar though it's not my first instrument um easy to carry around and it's I don't know I think it's intimate too um for songwriting yeah um so I write on guitar more more often than not and uh I don't know I've I've been trying to switch things up though I I wrote a song uh, that we just recorded off a bass riff where I wrote a bass riff yeah and it sounds really cool now because it had a different approach or write a song from a horn line yeah so I'm kind of exploring finding songs from different places because I want to constantly evolve and change and get better. And, um, 
I don't want to be that guy that always starts with a capo and a G chord. Although sure. I do many times and I, and I love it. I'm all about that sure. too. But, um, I think production is part of my songwriting process now, but that's more recent. Um, it's been a, just a, you know, a guitar and a, and a melody. I, yeah, I think the production thing is becoming more and more popular as, uh, as the years have gone on because there's all these different, uh, options that you're presented with when you open up software programs and between that and if if it's a band that you have permanent members uh everybody's trying to contribute in some way and i think it's easy to be inspired and um now a lot of bands just get into the studio and start writing there which is also interesting and expensive expensive and <laughs> the pressure's on yeah because we don't do that ever in the studio yeah, <laughs> right not, now anyway. Not yet. Um, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a, a good way of putting it where it's like, it's never the same every time. It might be one way the majority of the time, but it's not going to be the same every time. And the, the lyrics thing is, I mean, like, where do you find trouble at that point when you're, when you're at a song and you're stuck how long does does it take before you give up on it, or do you come back to it? Do you give it a month? Like where where does that lie? Well, I mean, a lot of the songs that end up making it to the set get written relatively quickly, where there's maybe hang ups for a few weeks, but nothing crazy, you know. And and sometimes they get done in a few days. I I'll battle over and over again with songs that I've had for a long time and I've got a, so many great riffs with a great chorus line right. where I'll sit down and try to hammer something out and they've been sitting there for years. Yeah. Um, I recently, a song that's that we just recorded called Mona Lisa's Everywhere, I started probably like five years ago and uh, I finally finished it and I just kept every couple months when I'm writing, I'll pull it back out and carve at it a little bit more. Yeah. But I think um, I have a lot more unfinished paintings than finished ones, but I, as long as I'm aware that it's there, right? They can get lost sure. <laughs> in your voice memos. But yeah. as long as I'm aware that it's there, I don't, um, I don't ever give up on a song. And when I'm writing too, I I don't often write one song. Yeah. Um, I'll be sitting there with a song I started last week right here and a song. I started two months ago right here and a new riff I came up with today right here and I might just kind of depends how you're feeling. Yeah. If you get ways. stuck on the right, head over to the left. Yeah. If you get stuck on the left, go to the middle. Yeah. It gives you an idea for the right. Do you think a lot of what you're listening to at the time plays a big role into what you're writing or does it seem like stylistically it's, it's pretty uh, set in stone? In terms of in terms of topic, sure or genre wise, like pretty like, are you a believer in the fact that like, when you write a song and take it to the studio, the production style is gonna probably stay stay the same most of the time, unless if you know you're trying to go for something on purpose, like. Well, I mean, I, I got something I I actually do think a lot about. Um, in in the songwriting process, I try not to give myself too much pressure 
of I, I think when we get stuck on songs, it happens to me all the time. It's because we're hearing the song as a finished product when we're one verse into it. Yeah. Um, and that's dangerous because songs don't even have to reach the public and that's okay. Right. Um, so if you're writing thinking, oh, what's Patrick going to think of this when yeah. he hears it? That's dangerous. Just write the song first. Right. Um, and, and I try to just write good songs and I think my songs come out of my influences, but I am not opposed to trying anything new. Um, sure. Production wise, I just want to write a, a good song that's going to reach people. Yeah. I think, I think there is some light to be shed on the fact that, you know, you said that you're not writing for other people necessarily until that song is done. And then you figure out how to connect it with other people. Yeah. Um, but if you're writing a song to please your manager, your producer, you're probably not writing that for you. And therefore the personality to it is stripped away so fast. And that's when it starts to tip over, I think in a way where it's like, well, I can't even connect to this because what I personally think about the song is I'm writing it because my producer is on my ass about getting one more track in this record. And instead of, giving it a week for that song to come. It's like, no, nope, I need it by tomorrow. That's why staff writing is such a crazy thing to me. It is crazy. Yeah. It's a different animal, right? Yeah. Have you ever done staff writing? No, no, yeah. I've done. Uh, and in fact, I don't even co-write very much. Yeah. Um, Cause it's kind of a personal thing for me. And I, I'll write with somebody that knows me. Yeah. Um, but it's a different level of, vulnerability in yeah, that sense it, it is and, and there's also a, a, this weird thing about you know you could throw out a line and somebody might I, I don't know I don't know it's just it seems I'm probably ignorant and I should do more of it yeah um but I don't know I I, I don't just want to necessarily it goes back to that I don't want to manufacture something where we're thinking about what the end result is before we're done with the Sure. With the project. And I've co-written and I, and I will again, I'm about to work on one, uh, coming up, but yeah. it's, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it, I don't think that's, uh, that's selfishness in any way. I think that's more, um, wanting to keep it to yourself. Yeah. Which is, I think sharing music is probably the hardest thing that most musicians face in a band is, being able to uh, get to that spot where it's like, okay, when it really comes down to like, who is doing this, you know, we can call it, you know, all of ours. Sure. But it's like, when it comes down to it, like who is writing those words? And it's why you look at like a band like Frightened Rabbit and you think of Scott. Um, mm -hmm. It's why you look at Wilco and think of Jeff Tweedy. It's because those are their words. And then you learn more about, where they came from, like, um, you know, Scott is its own subject, but you know, Jeff writes a book and, uh, and you're like, it makes so much more sense. And yeah. that's kind of crazy. Well, and I, there's a difference too, between those of us that are maybe trying to create a story and create an artist persona and a career or whatever, revolving around who we are and what we do, as opposed to somebody whose goal is to have, um, 
a song cut by Jason Aldean or whatever. And that that's totally okay. And I would love that. It's so a total if, other art form. Yeah, if a big artist wanted to cut one of my songs or I had the opportunity to write a song for another artist, of course that would be that would be sweet. But I I'm the artist guy, and and there's there is a happy medium uh, that you have to constantly balance. On one hand, you do want it to be your words, and you don't want you want it to be genuine. And if you're writing for someone else who's trying to write a hit, they might not understand who you are or what you're going for as an artist, and so yeah. that can be poisonous. At the same time, um, I've presented lyrics, and I see tons of people present lyrics where you look at the words and you say, hey, man, like this verse can be better. This verse doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And I say or they say, oh, you know, you just don't get it. This is who I am. Um, and having another writer there would make their song much better. Yeah. So I think there's a balancing act there too. I wonder, I mean, like, I don't know if that would make much sense, but uh, I wonder why the pop uh, world is, because you see more of it there, pop and country, uh, because you see of it more there, is it more glorified because it's the same damn thing you feel like every time? Because I've, heard from multiple people that country writers will get in the room and it'll be about eight guys um or guys or gals and um it'll be okay we need to name the song and then we write the song which i think is insane <laughs> yeah in some ways yeah it, it there are just things like that where um and i'm sure it's done in pop in the same way where it's like okay so a and r has just come to us and we've got to write first track for the next Taylor Swift record it's like what it's I struggle to understand it at times yeah and uh I don't know if uh I don't think it means that the musicians are less respected but then I think a lot of people don't realize it uh in the world like like I think people hear a Taylor Swift song and they're like oh that's she must have wrote it Right. You don't realize that there were yeah. nine people that had a hand in it before that song even came close to a demo process. And I, I mean, I, yeah, I wish we had more of, of the other end of it instead of just uh, a machine manufacturing something for sales, right? Which is, which is, I, I mean, at the end of the day, that's what, that's what we all want. Yeah. Right. We all, we all want to manufacture sales and get people to our shows, but the fact that there's a formula in a machine uh, like a like a printer that's just putting out something because it works it is sort of disappointing. And I think a lot of young people especially are exposed to a certain – are exposed to the music that they're told they're supposed to like. Sure. It's what's cultural – culturally accepted it's what's culturally accepted and then people say well this is the music this is the music that sells and i think well i don't know i would be willing to bet if we put uh jason isbel in regular rotation on alice 105.9 i bet a lot of people would i mean he has a huge fan base already but sure um i think he could be taylor swift big and a lot of people like that could sure well you look at the guy who covered cover me up and that yeah. song, uh, uh, I don't know the Guth- guys. Guthrie, maybe. I'm trying to, yeah, uh, something. Uh, and people play that song, and don't even know it's Jason's. Yeah, it's insane to me. Uh huh. But 
Well, and, and Jason had that same thing with, uh, God, I loved the movie. Uh, what is it with Lady Gaga and... Oh, uh, A Star is Born. Yeah, Star is Born. He wrote Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe It's, it's time. time. Yeah, yeah and uh, <laughs> nobody knows that's his song, but, it's but funny I think because he secretly he, loves that. Yeah, I think he does. And like he'll, uh, he's been throwing that in his encores. Like really? I, yeah, he was cool. doing that, which I thought was really funny. But um, yeah, I it's an interesting world, man, because that formula that you're talking about, it's definitely there. Um, I heard John Mayer talk about uh, how he's like, there's a pattern of, uh, you know, one four five and this time signature that is really uh what's been the popular thing this year. So he's like, and then he's like giving all these different examples of songs that are exactly in that same thing. And you're like, what the fuck? Like this was all of the songs that were hits this year. And he's completely right. And that's why staff writers are geniuses in some way, because they recognize that. And then I think, you know, I'm really curious to see, uh, I, you know, I spent a week at Berkeley, but I'm really interested to see what it's going to look like from an instructional standpoint, because I think a lot of people, I've been a believer for a really long time that songwriting can't really be taught. There are tips and tricks that can be brought to you along the way, but. Well, it's, I think it's definitely intuitive to a degree and if anybody can get better at it, but it's intuitive. I mean, the same as. Anything is. Uh, I I could never be a professional basketball player if I woke up and played for ten hours a day since I was four years old, <laughs> but I would get a lot better at it. Right. Um. But there's, there's um. Yeah, and there's a certain amount of natural skill and intuitiveness probably as well. Oh yeah, I, yeah. I mean, you can't wake up every day and be like, oh, I'm gonna be an imaginary person instead of a spaceman. It's like, right everyone's given a different talent and uh, I think that's what's so so great about musicians is it that intuitive feeling is like if it's raw it's noticed and I think where that light has been shed the most lately in the past probably 10 to 15 years is 100% in indie rock and rock and roll in Americana because it's so vulnerable and that raw talent really does come out where it's like pop is amazing don't get me wrong in so many different ways, but you're not like the reaction that a person has versus sitting in a closet, listening to the national uh, versus listening to post Malone is just different. Some people find it amazing, but um, you know what I mean? Like people just, there's a different level of connection. Absolutely. And and for some people, their connection with music is... Um, is real. Six, yeah, it's real. And there's other people where their connection is they want to listen to a song about girls and beer at 6 o'clock when they get off work. Right. And and, and maybe that's what they connect to. And fine. Yeah. Maybe some people really do connect to that. Yeah. I find a hard... I mean, like, not a hard time believing it, but I do find a hard time believing that they can listen to that same damn song all night. It's like, dude, you just listen to basically the same song's message 
all night while you just had a barbecue on your patio. Yeah. And it's like you break open, I don't know, like Dylan, Petty, and you're like, what the hell is this? Uh-huh. And I think, and like I said, the respect goes to the people who genuinely have a connection to it. That's amazing, and it's well, great. And hats and that's off the purpose. to the artists that accomplished both. Who, sure. Uh, extreme top 40 success and um, genuine and amazing. And there's a lot of people like that, too, out there. And I genuine respect to artists that have found a way to break into huge commercial success, but yeah. also uh, in, integ- musical integrity, if you want to call it that, or stuff that songwriters like, too. Tom Petty, you know. Well, it's like everyone loves Petty. Everybody loves Tom Everyone Petty. knows a Petty song. How could you not? Uh, everyone, you know, it's it's the Petty examples. They're there to be found. Everyone knows one song. They've heard it. Uh, those are the, the people who really accomplish a lot because they've gone to wide varieties and so now it's like, how how can it be done? Yeah. But it's like Billie Eilish, like a lot of rock and roll musicians have a lot of respect for her because it's real. She's putting in work. Her brother and her are putting in work. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah, they're doing cool things. Yeah. And I, I don't know, it's just it's things like that where if it's illustrated that it's real, it's pretty cool to watch. And yeah. it it's definitely there's a connection to be found so i don't know if that like contradicts itself but um because we go from a scale where it's like okay pop you can't connect it to it at all and then like oh maybe you can and then like rock and roll loves pop <laughs> you know yeah. what i mean there's three different ways of looking at it but it all depends on the artist yep Absolutely. and it all depends on who's got their hand in the work and honestly as a musician you know this too you can tell when the song is written by that artist versus when it's not. Of course. And I mean, like, I think that's that's an interesting egg to break open, the fact that, like, I mean, if you were, if you were giving somebody a song, would you really, like, for, if someone came to you and was like, okay, I need a song for this girl's project, like, how would you feel about writing it? I would give it a go. I would give sure. it a go. I think it'd be fun. I, I think it'd be fun from my own artist perspective and writer perspective to um, try to put myself in someone else's shoes, but I would try to write a genuinely... Uh, I, w- I would try to write a song that I would be proud to perform as an artist. Yeah. For that person. It's, it's cool, because I think there's a lot of people who probably don't have that. Yeah. And I think that's what makes you a pretty special musician in that way. Um, yeah, I had to write it. Christmas song earlier this year and I actually like tried I was like this could be decent I'm gonna write a good Christmas song yeah <laughs> yeah I'm gonna play it for three shows and then we're just gonna say goodbye to it and do it next we'll, November too yeah <laughs> yeah and everyone's gonna dig it um well awesome man yeah I, I think that's a that's a super super interesting way of doing it um for you you've been working in the studio uh Two EPs is what is on tap We have for two, Andy Sido fans out there. Yeah. We have two EPs completely done and mastered. We're getting one pressed this week. 
Um, they're both three song EPs, but we also uh, have a Fleetwood Mac cover that's going to final edits. We have six other tunes that are have been recorded that we're kind of finishing up production on. Um, and I'm getting ready to go and do some more stuff. So there should just be a, a, a steady flow every few months of some new tunes. Yeah. Um, from there, it's touring in Canada. Give a little uh, quick insight. I don't know what you want to do about time here, but um, what I mean, what does it look like for you when you're touring in Canada? Because I know you've done this before. That's a very cool thing. It's definitely random, but in a super cool thing. Well, in some ways, it's in some ways uh, we're going and playing. I mean, you, in some ways, you could do the same thing in Denver, right? And, and right. there certainly is that allure for us of, oh, we're going to play an international, man. <laughs> sure. You're like, dude, we're going to play Three Freaks of Saskatchewan. Yeah, 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 exactly. But um, on the other hand, we are we're in good venues and they they have um they have residencies and and regulars that go it's they're all blues clubs that we do up there good. uh and we might be the furthest thing from what it the? that they get there but for that reason we have just enough of that influence that most people really like us yeah. and we're not just another 12 bar band showing up this is something different so that, we've had some success for that reason, but it's, it's really cool. There's, there's a lot of venues up there that, um, nurture the idea of, we're not just trying to book the biggest show this weekend to make the most money this weekend. We are a club that plays this sort of music. And if I book them, it's because I like them. And if you come to my club, it's because you like the music I book. Right. And that's a risky thing. But for these venues that have been doing it for a long time, they have a, a steady fan base um, and they will go check out artists. And, and it's really cool. And uh, all these venues that we play do multiple night runs too. Yeah. And that's nice. So in Calgary, we played a place called the blues can. Uh, and we just did one night there last time and they, uh, they gave us a second night and, and some, uh, you know, it, and, and the, the people that were there last time that liked it, they'll come back again Yeah, because they, they go there. They look at the concert calendar. Um, blues on white is the big venue in Edmonton. That's what first got us going up there. Right. It's, um, it fits a lot of people when, when it fills up Yeah, and it's a, you know, just a famous old blues blues venue and also it's a hotel. So we started going up because they had a backline B three and drum kit and everything. Yeah. And everybody in the band gets their own hotel room. Pretty so good you, deal. And you stay put for a week. <laughs> so, You're like you do not leave. Oh man, I would I wish they did more residencies in this area, but yeah. um so that's that's the big appeal why we go up there is because residencies in, in a yeah. lot of places that have band houses. But we do five nights in Edmonton, and then we're doing uh, three nights in Saskatoon at a place called Buds on Broadway. Okay. And that was our, our I'd say that's our best draw outside of Denver. Nice. <laughs> so so we're excited about that one for sure. That'll be good. I think uh, you touched upon it there where it's like playing uh, clubs, so they're blues clubs. You definitely have... Uh, a blues influence in your music, but you also have a lot of different things as well. Um, you can, you can put it on a really grand scale, your music. And I think that's another really great thing. That's 
uh, <laughs> as a part of it because not many artists can do that where they can connect in so many different fashions. And it's a blessing and a curse. It is, but more more often than not, that's probably a blessing. I think I'm actually struggling with that a lot right now in my career um, because we're trying to label me, and we need to. We yeah. need to um, for marketing purposes. <laughs> but, Thank you, management. Yeah, 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 exactly. Thank you, management. Um, it's It's a weird thing because we certainly can play in a blues circuit. We certainly... Can, I can go play in a singer-songwriter or Americana circuit. Um, we could go play in a jam circuit or even a, a bluegrassy circuit, even though we don't do any of that sort of thing, and they would like us. Yeah. Um, but that also makes it really tough. It's made it really tough for us to to grow because we're not... Exactly what... Fans, fans of blues, like if we were playing straight-ahead blues and touring hard and doing blues music we would have the support of all the blues societies and yeah. stuff like that. And, and the blues societies look at us and they say, you're not really blues. Um, and then we want to go do jam clubs or whatever, whatever it is, the heart, the, the foundation, the hardcore foundation that nurtures artists and brings them up in, in the roots of that scene doesn't really support us because, yeah. well, you're not this and you're not that and you're not this and you're not that. I, so that, it's been really tough lately, um, and it's really tough for me to give um, a good elevator pitch. But I think in the long run, if I can hold out long enough, mm-hmm. which I will, it'll be a good thing. And a lot of the artists that we know and love are not at all contained in one genre. Yeah. And they don't need to be because they're big enough that they're well, Paul Simon or whatever. You Well, you look at like what Wilco did. Yes. Uh, when they do... Being there, and they do the first record, and um, immediately they do uh, Yankee Hotel, Foxtrot, um, after Mermaid Avenue, whatever, and um, and they probably lost a lot of fans, but they probably gained a lot more too because they expanded it. Do you feel like yeah? I and I feel like with you, that's led to a lot of opportunities, including some of the opening slots that you've had. So yeah, with Brett, he's definitely Americana and folk rock, but then you go, you play with, uh, Co Wetzel. Who's straight ahead. Who's straight ahead country. Yeah. Pop, and, pop, pop end of it. Right. But it's like you survive. You don't look like you're playing to a bunch of people. Um, who it's like, you, you don't look like you're the only guy who speaks English in the room. Like you look like you, uh, you have a good hold on the audience. Um, I think that's special, and uh, it's it's very cool because though though some may restrict some restrictions may come with that. I think some a lot more doors are open in that sense of the word. Um, yeah, if you're given the opportunity by other bands, I think I think you're absolutely right, and and if a a bigger band wants someone that doesn't sound exactly like them, then we're the key. Sure. Um, but it, it, you're right. It's interesting when we played at the Ogden with Co Wetzel. Yeah. It was a packed show of hammered 20 somethings. <laughs> and a lot of fake IDs out there. <laughs> a lot of fake IDs. There's a lot of cops, um, a lot of fights, a lot of vomit. 
uh, a lot of breakups, a lot of breakups. And I'll tell you what, it was a blast being in the middle of it. It was just, I mean, and watching it from the stage, I should say <laughs> that was the best part about the entire show. It was I think. the best. No. And I, I loved that audience and I love that country audience. They're, they're so cool and they're there they love for it. a good time. Um, uh, they're nothing like, and they were, they, they were super attentive. They bought a lot of merch. They cheered, um, they didn't boo us off the stage, which, um, you know, they, they, uh, weren't maybe as nice to the act before us. <laughs> Unfortunately, I thought they were great, but, um, they were actually more straight ahead old country and the, and yeah, the young audience surprising. didn't love it. But, you know, and then the show with Brett Denon and the shows with Chuck Prophet, uh, where they're not on a bill with a co-wetzel. Sure. Um. And those bills fit really well, and that's an older audience, and they really loved it too. So it's cool that we're able to reach all these audiences. I think the the uh, math problem is how do we how do we somehow home in on something to where a scene can to where we can grow? Yeah, right. I don't want to be. Um, You're wanting to stem the demographic in probably one place and then grow from there. I, I think that's how most people do it. I think it's really hard to spread yourself thin and gradually grow in this scene and that scene and that scene. Um, but I'm just trying things and failing and trying things and failing, and I love it. Yeah. Um, but, but it's it's the, the there's good to come. What's that? There's good to come from. There's that. good to come from it. Yeah, you know, uh, there's a lot, you gotta there's a lot of ways not to invent the light bulb, um, and that's that's that's, <laughs> that's how true. we did it. But then now, someone knows that. So it's just paving the road for. Maybe so. Maybe so. It's who has the insight to all the secrets that may come with this. <laughs> it's an int- it's an interesting thing. Um, it's an interesting thing. Like I said, we're trying to come up with a with a good elevator pitch because I I think I have a good one, and then yeah. a buddy will be like, "You don't sound like Dawes, you know, yeah. or whatever." Like, what are you thinking? Yeah. You don't sound like John Hyatt. Who are you? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that's the point where you just gotta tell people to fuck off and do what you want. I couldn't, you couldn't said it better myself. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's only so many people that you can displease before you're like, well, we're just gonna go with it. There's gonna be a group that likes it for sure because there is an audience for everything, hundred percent. Like people who say there isn't well and where do all those audiences come together the people that are going to the pop country show and the people that are going to the americana songwriter intimate show there's there's people like me out there there's people like you out there that like this melting pot of different music sure um and they're band yeah and, and it's just like well where is that demographic well i think that's the end of the equation is finding it yeah and once it's found and once it's targeted and you're able to get the Facebook ads to them, and you're able to get on playlists that these people are following and using at their dinner parties every, you know, fucking Saturday. Um, that's that's when you kind of hit the golden away, because you once that is noticed and you know where you're going towards, it's with anything. If you know what the end goal is, it's a lot easier to get there versus driving a road that like you have no idea where the destination is. And I think that is one of the hardest parts about being a musician and a touring musician and a recording artist is that destination is not easily found. 
and yeah. it's in some ways a competition to see who can get there first. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh the different genres aren't that far apart in the in the party run around on stage rock and roll isn't that far from an intimate songwriter show. It it just isn't. No. Um they're kissing cousins and all all these things. <laughs> well, hopefully <laughs> hopefully not. But uh hopefully not too much of that. Yeah, but there I I don't know. There's um there's there's something out there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm trailing off, but yeah, I think it's to be found, man. And I think uh, I've I've had the pleasure of hearing some of these new songs, and uh, I think it's some of your best work yet. So uh, I think everyone's going to be excited to hear it. And I definitely am excited to hear all of it. Uh, and I think uh, you should definitely be proud for how far you've come and to continue doing it, man. I appreciate it. Likewise. Hell yeah. Likewise, you're doing a lot of really cool things. Thank you, brother. It's uh, It's been fun. I appreciate you uh, letting me come interview you. Um. Yeah, it's been cool. You're even sitting in my chair. <laughs> <laughs> the, the script has flipped, ladies and gentlemen. All well, right, man. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't know if there's going to be a second time, but we'll see. Um, I'm down. Any closing notes from uh, the man himself? Well, just just the obligatory, obligatory. We have a new. The sing the second single already be out, but I've got an EP called Wicked Dreams coming out on May sixteenth, and there's videos for all three of them. One of them uh, has stick figures doing it, so you know, check out check out the mu- new music and parental and, yeah, advision yeah, lots of parental advisory. No, not that much, just like five seconds of it. <laughs> <laughs> You've got some yeah. There's some cool things ahead for Andy Sitto and his band, so definitely uh, from one music lover to another, check it out. 516, coming in hot. Is there a release show for this? uh, There is going to be a release party, and I mean literally a party. It's going to be at Lincoln Station, Coffee, Pizza, Music. (laughs) We're not bringing the band in. We're just friends and pizza and drinks. Maybe I'll do a short acoustic set, but there's been so much love and tears and stress put into put into the songs and um i love performing more than anything but i well, we're not gonna do it for this one we're not gonna we just want uh family and friends and fans to come out and actually celebrate with us yeah so feels good man brad all right thanks man of course back thanks patrick thanks so much for doing that that was a real treat um this you know will be episode 39 or 40 whenever this gets edited and put up and and such a treat to get to to get to do an episode and we're sort of putting this out lining up with my ep release wicked dreams which is probably already out when this comes out may 16th um so I'm going to play out with one of those songs. I can do that, right? I usually play out with, with the artist, and today I'm the artist, so I get to play one of my songs on the way out. Um, but again, Patrick, thanks for doing that. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm so grateful for this podcast and getting to do it, getting to bring it. So if you wouldn't mind, if you like it, if you enjoy it, head over and give it a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. 
We're also on Spotify now, which is new, and we're also on YouTube. However, this episode probably won't be there because it's before we started videotaping the episodes that the actual interview was done. So anyhow, any support is appreciated. Thank you so much to everybody for listening, and I look forward to seeing you. I guess I'm not going to see you, but I look forward to having you along for the for the next journey next Thursday. Thanks. Here's Still My Girl. I love the way you look at the TV But you never watch the news I love the way you judge the people Who would never try to hurt you It's okay, dear Cause you're still my girl I love the way you go to church When you don't believe the prayers get answered And the way you sing their songs like you just wrote them on a napkin It's okay, dear Cause you're still my girl Oh, oh The way you do all the things you do You don't know what you got me bottle of booze when you claim that you quit drinking and the way you cover it up with a fresh stain on the landing it's okay dear I'll clean it up for you I love the way you write your tests with no apparent answers just cause you smoke doesn't mean you'll get cancer It's okay, dear Cause you're still my girl